Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hey there, listener. Welcome to the Deep Share Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Rouse. And for the last couple of decades, I've slowly been opening my eyes to a very different world than the one I grew up hearing about. And the more conversations I have with interesting people, the more mystifying this world becomes. So without further ado, let's get deep. We got science to celebrate Demon's Blitz now! Come on! There is rebellion in the wind. It will be crushed. Everything I've said is true, it's real. Dinosaur fossils? Now let's put those here to test our faith. That damn lie, I, I saw him on my own eye! Did I the cues just drop sharply while I was away? We did it illusions, man! None of it is true! I'm not insane! This is mass madness, you maniac! In God's name, you people are the real thing! We are the illusion! Happy Friday, everybody. I have a real treat for you today. My guest is Freddie Silva. He's been traveling the world for the past 30 years, researching the ancient world and writing best-selling books like his newest, The Missing Lands. He's here to help me try and build a bridge between the tedious world of hands-on, down-in-the-dirt research and the chaotic, multi-directional realm of conspiracy theory. You all know which way I typically lean, but there's so many threads in the truth-seeking community that just don't fit with my own personal experiences. And while I still have grave suspicions about all kinds of hidden motivations throughout the world, Freddy reminds me to remain humble, keep an open mind, and to seek out the inspiring aspects of our ancient past. Hope you enjoy. So welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here with me tonight. No, thank you. So um, I've been following your work for quite a while now. Uh, and uh, over the years, I've, I've tried to, you know, express all these amazing things to my wife. And for so long, she just kind of rolled her eyes at me or didn't want to hear it. But Uh-oh. oddly enough, it was through Freddie Silva's work that suddenly made her go, oh my God, it's all real. <laughs> and just started her, you know, kind of down this amazing rabbit hole of uh, ancient symbolism and and megalithic structures, just like I did. I hope you're not the jealous type. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, she would love for me to say hi and thank you for all the work you do. <laughs> well, thanks to your wife. <laughs> yeah, Kate. You hear that? <laughs> um, so, just to start off, uh, I'd love to have you tell my audience a little bit more about uh, what kind of brought you from the very mainstream world of. I believe you were in graphic design, correct? A long time ago, yeah, once upon a and time. Advertising and photography. Oh, okay, yeah. And um, what brought you from something like that? to the world that you're living now where you're going on the, all these amazing adventures and you're showing people all these amazing things. 
yeah, how did that how did that big change happen for you, or was it kind of a gradual thing? It was kind of gradual. I mean, I, I I've been sort of drawing pyramids when I was a child, and I, my curiosity was always somewhere else. I, I was collecting dinosaur eggs when I was younger, when I was living in Portugal, and the whole plateau is just it's just a massive dinosaur uh, heaven. And uh, but no, I, I kept getting uh, laid off and fired from my job. So. Uh, I figured that uh, this was not the way. I, I, I just was not incompatible with what I was doing, making a living. The, the big thing is, how do you do this and try to make a living doing it? Uh, a lot of people have tried and not many people succeed. So it was a leap of faith. But here I am 25, 30 years later almost, uh, still at the top of my game and not really going anywhere except for up. Uh, like a, you know, a slow trajectory. I've never been on a, a fame quest. Uh, I'd rather do a nice slow burn all the way and then die happy at the end, you know. So, no, it's been wonderful. And, uh, you know, thanks to people like you that keep it going. Oh, well, that's great. That's great. Yeah, uh, it does kind of seem like that slow burn is the way to go, that just positive thinking throughout, you know. Yeah, um, not in a hurry. Not in a hurry, right. Um and also the focus of showing all of this to other people. I think, uh, you know, many of us that are fascinated by these things are so drawn to teaching other people about it because it's so unbelievable. And I think maybe that is, is part of the success of kind of putting the teaching out there and, and wanting to help others first is kind of always what they say. Yeah. Yeah. No, it really is. And doing it well. I mean, I know a lot of people, a lot of colleagues of mine who are exceptionally famous and somewhat rich, uh, all household names, and they're very good at what they do, but they're terrible at telling the story, uh, which is where things fall apart. You've got to entertain your audience. Uh, and I'm not, I don't mean by filling it with drivel. I mean by keeping you engaged in some way. And I find that the less you make up and the more you actually follow as facts, uh, keeps the audience engaged. And that's why it takes me a long time to write stuff or come out with documentaries. Although that said, with COVID, I've done four documentaries, so <laughs> I'm using my time wisely. But it takes time to research these things, and especially when you're do, dealing with the ancient past where so little is written down. You're looking at clues in etymology or location or the way the buildings are aligned or clues in the folklore. And the more you piece them together, they start forming a story. And you're hoping that the story is going to be true, that you, you, know, you have to get out of the way. You have to get your ego out of the way and say, I'm just a storyteller piecing together the ancient past, rummaging through old dustbins and finding out how can we pick the story together. It's like a forensic story in order yes. to make it palatable to the public, which is, which is where my uh, years in advertising really comes in useful because I like to engage with the audience to get them to want to buy what I'm selling. So it wasn't a loss at the end. It was actually very useful. Uh, and at that, and then you, but you've got to keep it also happy. You've got to keep it engageable in a way that's uh, human. And uh, I think a lot of people miss out on that. They, they need to go out and listen to storytellers and see how they do it. That's exactly where I was actually going to go with this. Um, you know, I heard you say um, once in an interview, mythical legends are theatrical devices written in such a dramatic way that you will never forget the story. Absolutely. And, you know, so many great researchers are talking about this underlying story. We have so many of these you know, varieties of stories from all around the world and all different time periods, obviously. And, uh, 
you know, when you don't accept the mainstream theory is, you know, story about history, uh, the floodgates open. And that's where conspiracy theorists get lost in the weeds because a lot of the <laughs> misinformation and disinformation maybe regarding ancient symbolism. Uh, what is this underlying story that is meant to not be forgotten? Oh, it's because people that came before us, they went through hell. I mean, uh, if you look at what was going on 12,000 years ago with the flood and, and read the available, what, 150-odd remaining stories, and you begin to realize these were not just things that were made up by hunter-gatherers who should not be making up that kind of stuff anyway, when you think about it. Right. Uh, they're actually eyewitness accounts. And uh, you know, the only way to keep this alive is to make, it sh make sure that it's memorable. But at the same time, you have to put it into such a way that shows that what we're telling you is to make sure that when you go through this, and you will, uh, because you know things are cyclical, they're not linear, time is not linear, the ancient Egyptians recognized that, you know, that, and they said that we've been around for 38, 39,000 years. It's actually written on one of the papyrus. And they said, we've seen the earth flip upside down, we've seen it rotate backwards, and here we are. Why? Because we listened to what people were telling us, and we heeded the caution, and we know that we're going to be facing this someday. Some will die and some will survive. The trick is, the survivors don't have to start like children and, and barbarians again. You start from where others left off because you remember the stories and how you prepare and how you survive. And that's the secret of why this is all encoded in ways which, and here's the paradox, it takes a genius to work this stuff out. <laughs> right. Because these symbols and these stories sometimes are worded in such a way that you go, what the hell are they talking about? What, what were they smoking? You have to sit with it. You've got to be very quiet with it and appreciate the fact that they're writing this from a different period with a different worldview. You've got to put yourself in their shoes. And when you do that, once you just relax, you go, oh, it makes absolute sense. But you have to sit with it for a while. That takes patience and a bit of courage. Uh, but the warning signs are all there. You know? And also things which also uphold the highest levels of achievement in humanity. This is where we're, why we're here, is to be better than when we arrive, not just for ourselves, but also for the world at large. So if we take these teachings and elevate ourselves, then people around us elevate as well. And that's how we become to be a better society. So these are all basic things that we're all looking for. And yet we're buying every book and going to every conference and watching and reading every podcast. And it's all there. The tools are all right there. But we're <laughs> expecting a miracle. But the miracle is what's right in front of us. That kind of It's almost like a theater, like a, a pretty bad play. But it's all absolutely true. Yeah, the, it's funny you mentioned theater in that way because... A lot of conspiracy theorists get caught up in this idea that, you know, someone is running the show, someone is, and this goes all the way back through time. And the thing is, is, you know, I'm one of them. I'm totally into that stuff. Oh, yeah. Uh, but there's something going on there that doesn't, doesn't fit completely because uh, personally, from my psychedelic experiences, I started to resonate quite a bit with the philosophies of hermeticism and Gnosticism and all these things that the conspiracy world deems completely evil, very similar to the Catholic church deeming it completely. So there's a lot there's of confusion there. there. You know what I mean? We're already wearing the tinfoil hats right now, but <laughs> basically what I wanted to get at is I think that there's, there's a, 
silver lining to all this stuff. And I, I, I find a lot of it in your work because you really focus on the positive end of all this stuff. And it turns the conspiracy right on its head. And I I just find that fascinating. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that because I know that my audience is very open-minded, but also like me, where we've become unfortunately invested in this kind of egoic game of of, uh, worrying about the elites constantly and doing all that kind of business. When clearly the things you're teaching teach us that we need to be more focused on ourselves and, and the love and the, and the spirituality and, and how we can better ourselves. So yeah. could you talk a little bit about that weird situation going on where people know yeah. more about the past than the internet does sometimes like you, you know, more. Oh God, yeah. <laughs> Don't trust the internet. I mean, it's a great tool, but everybody is misusing it as well. So it's mm. uh, it's like a hammer. You can put a picture up or you can bash someone's skull with it. You can go either way. Right. Uh, now I've always joked that the, uh, the best, um, the lack of any evidence is a sure sign that a conspiracy exists. And it's usually down to aliens. Uh, and uh, it's my sarcastic <laughs> self coming out. Uh, it keeps you kind of sane. Uh, right. No, it's good. To, it's good to question things. It's good to be skeptical of things. I mean, some of my uh, best, uh, I'd say, teachers, people that I looked up to, after all the work I've done in touring and lectures, most of them are absolutely full of hot air. They really are. Uh, and I figured the only person you can follow is yourself for your own experience. And if things make sense to you, you kind of assimilate them. Um, but no, I think that the problem is that there are so many people, uh, especially with the internet today and the access to television, everybody wants to be on a soapbox and they want to be famous. Well, fame really comes after the fact. That's like an icing on the cake. You don't do it for that reason. And I see a lot of people stretching ideas and making connections where there are no connections because they haven't done the homework. It's hard work what I do, it really is. Uh, you, just when you think you know what you know, what you know, you actually don't know because something else will pop out of the woodwork and go, ah, I was making things because there's connections because that's what I wanted to do, but that's not how it is. So you've got to leave it alone. Keep going, keep pursuing. And some of the things that frustrate me with a lot of the conspiracy theory, not that they're always wrong, it's just a lot of them are, uh, is that uh, they're stretching and they're connecting dots where they really aren't. And if you really think it through, um, if you're not really uh, individually um, in touch with these uh, the points of these conspiracies, then there's nothing you can do about them anyway. So you're only going to lose sleep. You may as well focus <laughs> on things which elevate you. Anything that elevates is usually on the right track. Anything that brings you down is usually, uh, we're in the dark side of the soul here. It's fun for a while, but there's no way out of it. Uh, that's how I usually keep myself grounded. So what I usually tell people is, yeah, if it makes a lot of sense and it, feel, it makes you feel good, and there's a, and I always say that truth has a ring to it. It just does, you know. It does. And um, find, go and find something that's, that's parallels to it and get your point of view from three or four different sources and build up a picture for yourself. I mean, even I tell that to people. They're like, don't follow me, for heaven's sake. You know, tomorrow I might find that my compass has been pointing south. Where is that going to lead you? I'm hoping that I'm right, and I'm open to being contradicted because that's how research expands. That's how you get better. But all in all, I mean, you've got to look at a lot of these theories and you think, well, when you kind of start tearing them apart, there's really not much there, and it always ends up in a very negative space. So you might as well follow some other route. Uh, That's Mm -hmm. how the the barometer that, that I usually sort of live by, and it seems to be working well so far. Well, that's great to hear. <laughs> uh, um, I would, I, you know, more specifically to the, um, you know, when, you know, in the conspiracy circles, they get into the ancient past. And it does seem like, you know, 
we have some of it correct, but then we veer off. Like, I'm always very confused about how powerful all these symbols are in the ancient past and how sometimes it seems like it's pretty easy to write off the physical aspect of these beings or these stories happening because there's all these alternative roots like uh, have you, you know, the uh, astro theology uh, and the, the, the star myths where we're kind of, taking all of these ancient stories and, and aligning them and making parallels out of like, you know, events that happened in the cosmos and the movements of the stars and things like that. Is it sort of a mix of the two or is it one or the other? Because it's kind of hard to, to dissect whether we were visited by someone or if this was all allegory for consciousness or the star movements. There's so many different theories out there. Oh, it depends on the source. I think if you ask any native people, I mean, they don't even blink an eye when you ask them about star people. They go, oh, God, another white guy wants to know what we know. Uh, <laughs> and they're pretty open about it. I mean, the Zuni, people like Clifford Mahuti, who I, I actually adore, a uh, lovely man. And they'll say, yeah, I mean, we can go out to the canyon any um, given time at certain times of the year and go and hang out with the star people. What do you want to know? I said, well, that's I just want to say hello and share some stuff, you know. Uh, and if you go down to the, the Pacific, it's the same story as they, I mean, there's, I just written a book called The uh, um, the Missing Lands, and it talks about their point of view, the local people and how they perceive all of these stories and the flood and the gods and everything. And it's incredible when you just let, let them speak because they were here before us. Europeans <laughs> were sort of a, still a figment of the imagination when these people were around. Although paradoxically, all the gods that they describe were very tall, light-skinned, red-haired, with green eyes or blonde with blue eyes. But Scandinavians didn't exist back then. Uh, so these things come from oh. eyewitness accounts. They come from personal experience because you can track these stories across the world and they overlap. So it's not just one people like in Easter Island saying, well, yeah, these are how the, what the gods were doing here. When you get to South America, the story picks up there, and then it picks up on the other side of the Pacific. It picks up in India, then it picks up in Mesopotamia, and so forth. And you realize what they're telling you is actually there's a thread that connects them all. And you've got to keep your eye on that thing. Uh, one of the things that I like doing is going back to the earliest possible sources be before they get contaminated by us in the modern era. Because right. you stand a better chance of being closer to the truth. I mean, let's take uh, Sitchin. Uh, I know he's not around to defend himself, but, right. um, you know, at one point, uh, he, I mean, I read his books and he, he got me motivated to get into this. Uh, yeah, so right I owe here. him, <laughs> exactly, I owe him a modem of gratitude. But now that I know what I know, I also know that he made up a lot of things. Now, Really? Oh, absolutely. And people who now understand Sumerian will say, actually, we don't give a damn one way or the other about Sitchin. Uh, the point is, when we look at the he, when he was translating things, he's making up a lot of stuff to fit a theory, oh. uh, which is very dangerous. But that's not to say, okay, that's not to say you throw the baby out with the bathwater. Right. Okay. Because a lot of the points he makes led us to where we are today. So not all of us are right all the time. And I, I think you'd probably agree from somewhere saying, actually, that's kind of right because none of us know the absolute truth, but he was going in the right direction. But you can't take everything that he says verbatim because a lot of it actually, actually, that's not kind of what it means. So this is where the stories start getting a little bit frayed because you're following someone's opinion right. of the facts. Now, they may end up being right or they may end up being wrong. That's the problem that you face. You've got to go with it.
But if you cross-reference the stories, you begin to realize that part of what people like Sitchin were doing were actually taking allegorical stories and mixing them with real-life events, but then extrapolating something that actually didn't quite fit at all. I mean, for example, uh, when people start talking like like Eric, Eric von Daniken, um, who paints his hair a lot, I should say. <laughs> He's a lot older than you think. <laughs> nice guy. Uh, we're going to laugh sometimes, you know, we're too serious oh, yeah. about ourselves. Um, I mean, he was saying at, at the beginning, for example, that the Nazca lines were landing strips for spaceships. Well, right. okay, sounds very plausible until you go there and you realize that the lines are etched about this deep into the desert. It's a very fragile desert. Now, anything landing there would have destroyed whatever you see. So the theory falls apart. So this is what you got to look at. you got to look at the hypothesis and then say, okay, well, how can we back that up? And if it holds it will actually be a good theory. Uh, if it doesn't, then you throw it away and you go somewhere else. So it's a constant process of removal and adding and finding new information in order to keep finessing uh, the theory. Uh, it's the best thing you can do, really. Yeah, it really sounds like you're kind of decoding things. Like it's, it's you have to find the key and yeah. then you can use that key everywhere, not just in, in linguistics, but you, you talked upon that earlier when you said that uh, through shamanism, actually a lot of it is done through shamanism. It enables you to get out of that ego mentality and connect with something much greater. That's where you make the most progress. Then you bring back the information and you mm -hmm. apply it and you go, oh, actually, that is absolutely correct because it's, you have to do the work as well. We came here to do work. It's not right. going to be handed in for us. So the moment you make the leap and say, I want to know more about this, and I'm willing to put some uh, effort into this, and you can go traveling like I do or do shamanism, take ayahuasca, whatever, the, the tool at your disposal. And if you're able to do it properly and bring back the key and you start applying that key, you'd be surprised how much information comes out of this stuff. Yeah. Uh, I yeah. remember being at Saksai Waman, in Cusco one year and talking to my group of people and I was describing Saksai Waman and in my other ear it's like the temple is talking to me telling me to look at the origin of the name because it's to do with the bird and I'm going what uh, so and it looks like I'm actually on drugs because someone filmed me doing this and I wrote this down I, rem I remembered everything that was going on and I, I researched it it turns out actually it does mean the place of the satisfied falcon and I spoke to local Ayamara people who are one of the oldest people on earth. And I said, does this make any sense to you? Not really, because a falcon is not really part of our folklore. A condor would make a lot of sense. Uh, the wings of the condor. And I said, well, here's a photograph from the top. It looks like the two wings of a bird. It really does. But uh, I thought an Egyptian who's coming here would make sense of that because that's the, the wings of the falcon god Horus. And suddenly, bing, it connected all the temples within the perfect triangle of Saksaiwaman, and they were linked to the same initiation complex. And that's just from listening to a temple talking back to me and me doing the work. So that's how it works. There's, there is a part of a shamanic thing going on here. I really want to get into the the um, the temple stuff. Definitely, my wife will kill me if I don't because she really <laughs> wants to build one on our property. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, but, um, it's the time I have to go now. <laughs> <laughs> um, so before we do that, though, uh, we did you touched on us um, the symbol of this the bird, and that kind of just sparked something. Where I've heard a lot about this thing that stretches back supposedly all the way to the stories from Sumer about Enki and Enlil, these two brother characters. And especially now that we're talking about kind of this mixing of allegory and real history, 
interwoven into all of our our texts, so it's really difficult to kind of tell the difference, perhaps. What is the deal with that? Because, man, the Sitchin fans are obsessed with those two brothers, but, oh, not, all, but not just the Sitchin fans either. There's some... It, at least in my opinion, actually, uh, some very respectable researchers who at least follow that those stories from Sumer about those brothers and kind of link this brotherhood of the serpent yeah. idea uh, all the way into Rosicrucianism and Freemasonry. This idea that there's been this eagle versus serpent battle, but that might just be the negative side of things, um, between these two forces, one holding the knowledge versus the one trying to get the ancient wisdom under their control. And it's it, this wild story of these two forces gaining control of uh, the most important wisdom that's passed along. This seems kind of like a more conspiratorial version of maybe or more like a perversion perhaps, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's spot on. Do you know anything about this story and the legitimacy of where it comes from and how it goes forward through time? Yeah. I brought, I brought this up at great length in the, in the missing lands. Uh, and it was central to the, uh, to the book about who these gods were because no one's ever addressed that. And they're all connected by the way, worldwide. Now, here's the thing. Uh, Enki and Enlil are two very interesting people. Now, the first thing you've got to understand is, first of all, they were real people. Two, the Sumerians, by the time they wrote down the story, it was already over 5,000 years old. So they inherited the story from someone else. Whoa. The that they're talking about, and this is the big problem, it's where you have to put geology and climatology into the picture. Because you've got to ask these people, how does this look from your point of view? Well, when you add climatology and you look at ice core samples, we can now prove that 11,000 years ago, there was a global flood. It was not in 4000 BC, as a lot of the uh, experts had us believe, because they didn't have sufficient information. So the whole story of the flood and Enki and Elnil is not Sumerian. It was inherited from the people that they came from, which is the Armenian highlands. You've got to understand Armenian and you've got to understand who lived there which is a big brotherhood called the Lords of Anu, the Anunnaki. And people always think that these are people who are evil. They couldn't be any further from the truth. In fact, we owe them a, a modicum of gratitude for bailing us out of the flood. Otherwise, we would not be having this conversation right now. So mm -hmm. Enlil and Enki were basically feuding brothers. Uh, one was, I love humanity. Let's give these hunter-gatherers a chance. Let's give them every possible you know, uh, way up, and we'll help them. You know, Because we were there at one point millions of years ago, and Enlil just said, oh, just smite the bastards and let's get out of here. You know, They're behaving like idiots, and they're, you know, they're having sex like animals, and they drag mm -hmm. them to the cave. Uh, these are barbarians. I mean, let's just let them go. And of course, one guy has the heart, the other one has the head. Now, this brings us to the point of the people of the serpent, which gets into the whole reptilian thing. Uh, it's absolute nonsense. <laughs> Is that where that comes from? Because that's been my yes. contention. The pictures of these little um, sort of uh, figurines that were found with uh, bodies of people, but the heads of reptiles. But the thing is, that's the method that was used back in the day to show ignorant people what they were looking at. For example, in Egypt, we have a very elegant man with the head of a bird, the ibis. Now, no one in their right mind is going to suggest that people were cutting off the head of an ibis and sticking it on top of a head of a guy. The point was that they would say, well, these people are illiterate. So how do we convince people that they, when they look at the image of this guy called Jehuti or Toth, as the Greeks called them, they will be looking at the God of wisdom. 
I know. Let's look at nature. Hey, look, look at that bird over there, the ibis. Look at how it carries itself. Look at the grace of the curve of that, that thing. I know. We'll take the head of the ibis and put in the head of the man. So when the illiterate look at this composite image, they'll know that is the God of wisdom because wisdom makes you elegant. Mm. That's the thinking. Now, the people of the serpent were the real people. And you have to understand what the serpent means in the old days and throughout every culture on the face of the earth. The serpent has always denoted the invisible forces that drive the earth. So uh, scientists would, would call these the telluric currents. Some people call them the energy lines or the fairy paths, the dragon lines. Any god, and by which I mean physical people, any god that understood the laws of nature and could harness these laws became as a god, and they were described as a person of the serpent because the serpent was the energy that they were moving, they were using. So the same people appear, the nickname was given to the watchers, to the Anunnaki, to the people that survived the sinking land in the middle of the Atlantic called the Its, who arrived in Yucatan at the same time they arrived in, in Egypt, and they were called the people of the serpent. Mm. In Portugal, they were called the offuser, which means the people of the serpent. So it's a it's a badge of office. Uh, if you yeah. had that, yeah, if you had that badge, you were pretty high up in the scheme of things. So again, it's to do with the creative flow of life. So you see how a real story becomes an allegory, but it also becomes distorted because of the you know the vision that we add to these stories, which basically are our own projections. Mm, mostly our Very fears, confusing. it seems. <laughs> a lot of fears getting in there, <laughs> for sure. Um, I heard something else uh, about, I mean, it must have come from the people that followed Quetzalcoatl. Um, I heard that the lands that were, that we're in right now used to be called Amaruka, and that that actually meant the, the lands of the serpent. Is there any truth to that? I've not come across that one, and I've oh, okay, I came right. across a lot of them. They uh, Quetzalcoatl was another one of the people of the serpent, uh, right. as was Kukulkan and also Itzamna. We never hear mm. about him. Oh no, I don't. There were three mm. gods, and they were all in, in. They approached the land in a raft of serpents. In other words, you don't jump into a boat full of snakes. <laughs> the raft is full of people of the serpent, and uh, it was also a symbol of office, whereby anyone who was initiated into the um, into the cult of um, of the other world, which means that you take a drug, you leave the body voluntarily for three days, come back on the winter solstice, and you declare yourself risen from the dead. Uh, that story is over 12,000 years old, believe it or yeah. not. And there was a lot of people that have the same story. So when Jesus does it, his story is already 6,000 years old. A guy called Mithra did it before him. So it was also an allegorical story of how these people came to know what they came to know, the transformation of the serpent into the bird. Because the serpent also physically slides along the ground. It's uh, allegorically or metaphorically, it associates with material things. As an initiate, you've risen above that. You are spiritualized. You become the bird. You can see from the big the horizon. Therefore, you can see the big picture. It's not just a local thing. You see the big picture. So once you understand the symbol and the key, it makes perfect sense. And that's why there were hundreds, and I mean hundreds of Quetzalcoatl. It was a title, not a name. Mm. Just like Osiris was a title, not a name. There was many Osiris, and of course it drives Egyptologists crazy, but you ask the ancient Egyptians, oh, that was a title of office. Anybody could become an Osiris if they'd left the body, travel to the other world, which is usually Orion, by the way, 
in every culture in the world, they would come back into the body three days later and go, hey, that was a great journey. Guess who I met and what I learned. And I'm going to apply that in my daily life. And I've become, and I've become risen from the dead. I am no longer associated with my body. I have a different view of life. So that's a very old teaching uh, that it's presented in the people of the serpent in Quetzalcoatl. You really just blew my mind with that Osiris thing. <laughs> <laughs> and, and honestly, I recently rewatched something that you had done. I believe it was on Gaia um, about the Osirian the, in Egypt and the connection to Gobekli Tepe. And how, how old is, is that research? Is, is that recent? Uh, it was pretty recently. It went, it went into the missing lands as well. Uh, okay, yeah, yeah. I mean, this book has the uh, the kitchen sink thrown at it. I guess I was get frust- I got frustrated with doing so much traveling and not enough writing. And I threw all this stuff in it. Uh, but mm-hmm. the big frustration of the Assyrian was trying to find out how old it was. It seems to precede the pyramids uh, by about uh, 50 years or so. Uh, I mean, it, it, the sky is not going to change very much. But the whole story of the Assyrian really is not about Osiris. It's the woman he married. Uh, Osiris tends to be a god of high places. Isis is the uh, his wife tends to be in the low places, and the Osirian mm. was once a freestanding temple on the Nile, not a, not a, a cave. Uh, the mud that built up around it has transformed into a cave. And this, the story is actually in the temple above, which was built by um, Seti in, in 1300 BC. And he leaves the uh, story, the clue, in the last chamber at the very end of the temple, by which time you've taken enough pictures and you're not paying any attention. So, of course, you have to do the work. And it's all about her Isis looking over Osiris as a bird, as a hawk. And I thought, we've been looking at the wrong constellation with which to align the temple to the sky, because that usually tells you the date and when it was built. It's always a sky-ground relationship. And the Assyrian is, I thought, what the hell is it pointing? It's not pointing at the sun, the moon. It's not pointing at the Orion, as would you expect, uh, who is the image of Osiris. What the hell is it looking at? And suddenly I realized, uh, we're looking for a bird. So, of course, you think, ah, Cygnus is the obvious one. Well, back then, Cygnus was not a swan. It was a kite hawk, which is exactly the bird that was depicted with Isis. And suddenly, on the winter solstice in 10,500 BC, on the entrance to the Assyrian, the Milky Way rises vertically like a ladder, and the bird, Cygnus, rises exactly along that with Deneb right in the middle of the passage of the entrance. Oh, that was a wonderful moment. You know, it took me oh, eight man. visits before that sunk in. Uh, the, the Assyrian keeps its secrets very close to its chest. Wow. So, and you've been able to travel there recently too. I'm glad you've been able to do that during this chaos that's been going on. I'm glad you were able to keep place up the to travel. Go. They <laughs> yes. like us in Egypt. They don't care. Oh, yeah, they'll wear a mask that? at the airport. And once you've crossed and they stamp your passport, the mask goes off, they'll hug you and kiss you three times. Oh, uh, good. That's now, how we've I'm living. Best, best tours in Egypt during COVID, really. And we're all fine. Uh, we just great. take some basic precautions, obviously. Uh, but uh, no, we really have had the places to ourselves. And at one point, um, Mustafa, the head of Egyptian antiquities, actually flew down from Cairo to uh, do a photo op with little me in Karnak to show everything is fine. And I thought, can you do me a favor? And uh, we had this five-star general with a machine gun joining us for a meditation, which (laughs) never happens in an Islamic country. That's great. uh, We were making good friends over there. You're building a bridge of diplomacy, and it's good because they're lovely people. Yeah, that's great. Wow, that's amazing. That's so good to hear. And it's so good to hear that uh, it seems like Egypt's been opening up more over the past years um, since maybe, you know, power has changed a little bit um we are, we are the economy 
damn right and um the whole point of keeping that on lockdown over there i i I don't understand. I mean, maybe, maybe that's me going back into the conspiracies, but the whole point of these amazing objects over there in in what you describe in your work is that they're living temples basically that align with crystals that actually physically are in our brains and things like that. So how do we, how do we wrap our brains around that when most people have not even really accepted the idea yet that, this hippy dippy idea of the new age of the frequencies and all that is completely real. It's yeah. science. Yeah. <laughs> How it's, do we... it's, it's completely <laughs> real. It's just, it takes so many people a long time to accept that because they need hard evidence right. and we need a machine that can show me that. Well, we do have the machines that do that now. And uh, we've been sitting there, you know, for decades going, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we've been getting all the visions and the healing and everything that comes with being at these places because, you know, everybody in the world said these, these temples aren't stone. They're living, breathing organisms. And we figured, how do you measure that? Bing, someone develops a device, and you can actually measure the electromagnetic frequency of the temples going down as the sun sets and then lying low just before the, t- the sunrise. It, they attract the electromagnetic frequency of the land around them and the, into the temple at twice the frequency surrounding them, which no one can explain how that is done. That's mm-hmm. part of the technology that they did. And the idea was that the temple was a mirror image of a god. Now, a god back then wasn't a guy with a white beard. A god is an element of nature. So this Mm. microphone has a god. This glass has a god. Water has a god. Everything's a living soul inside it. So to mimic that into a physical temple is to bring onto the earth plane a physical depiction of a life force. You got to you got to wrap your head around that first of all. So when everything is designed to the right harmonics, to the right proportions, you are mimicking the perfection of nature. So when you and I go into these temples, and you know, and you know, my girlfriend left me, someone stole my car, I got a bills to play. Well, now the geometric structure of all the bonds that make up who we are is falling apart. What do you do? Well, you can smoke a good joint. Uh, am I allowed to say that on there? I don't know. You're uh, allowed you to say it on here. Scotch, <laughs> listen to great music, or you can go to the temple because the temple is the perfection, the mirror image of the perfection of the body of an unseen force. So when you walk in and you just stop thinking and you walk in, when you walk out, you feel better. You feel very different from when you arrived. And that's the point is to make sure that you and all the cells in your body reverberate to a new order and you become that order. You walk upright. Um, I'll give you a great example. Uh, Back in the 70s, when the uh, Russians were hard up for money, uh, they figured, hey, let's read all of this mumbo jumbo about Gothic cathedrals being the new pyramids and how they had these woo-woo powers. Well, the Russians actually are very, very interesting people. They are very curious and they've done the best experiments that literally try to bridge that gap between science and mysticism. And uh, so far, not much is written in English, but what little there is, is mind blowing. And one of the experiments that they carried out was in the Gothic cathedrals, okay, which are themselves built just like a pyramid or as a Stonehenge, but you couldn't get away with that back then. You had to make it look like a cruciform shape to live another day, if you know what I mean. So they found that when you put a person upright in the nave, which is exactly where the electromagnetic lines of energy flow down the cathedrals, and you start playing the Gregorian chant, which is the kind of pop music that they were playing back then, they monitored people's brainwaves and they said, wow, 
the brain waves are going 4,000% above normal waking state. This person is being levitated out of the body, connecting to God. And they realized, wow, then one of the buildings heal and they lead you to an outer, uh, an experience. I won't call it a religious state because religion is very different, but they're leading people into a spiritual level of excitement. So what did they do? They applied it in Bulgaria and they began to build rooms in specific geometric shapes and found that people healed much faster. So there's an application of a very old technology, which is now verified by machines that we've built in the 20th century to tell the skeptics, the woo-woo people were absolutely <laughs> right to begin with. I mean, why wouldn't they be? Yeah. So now, and you can really build temples like this on your own property and, and, and it can be beneficial to you. And this is interesting because I always thought that the, unbelievable precise measurements of the pyramid and and how it was built so like point on north and everything i thought all that was also to do with the the energetic power is it not can you kind of build this wherever or do they have to be oh okay absolutely in fact i just uh done a whole bunch of commissions of people to help them build uh, what I call portals on their land, even in their living rooms. I'm sitting on one right now and you can't tell. It's wow. really, really subtle. No, I mean, after going to hundreds, maybe thousands of temples and I'm writing down notes, I suddenly realized, wait a minute, they all have these things in common. There are six elements in common and one that escaped me, there's always a seventh. That one was the hard one to figure out. It turns out to be the most obvious of them all. I'm not going to tell you what it is. Uh, <laughs> there, are, there are documentaries and books about this. Uh, mm -hmm. And besides, it's a, it's a long story. But essentially, the temples are built on the same fundamental principles. And if you uh, bring those principles into a location, not only can you turn a ordinary space and bring electromagnetic energy to that space, by applying certain stones in a certain geometric configuration, you begin to actually influence the space around that area. Um, I just did a workshop in Sedona. I had 30 people uh, come from all over the country and we built a temple literally from scratch using small stones and crystals throughout a day. And then the best part is you bring the whole thing together and you watch people open the temple and some actually fell, fell down. I mean, <laughs> they didn't realize what was going to happen. Only I know what's going to happen. But you watch them. It's like this wave comes from the inside of the perimeter that they just created and it knocked people over. And they went, where did that come from? I said, you. It came from you. You are part of this technology. We're much more powerful than we've been led to believe. And once you include the, um, the power of intent into a certain prescribed method of putting these elements together, magic really happens. I mean, and you're part of that magic. And right. then be careful what you ask for in these places because you might get it. And sometimes what you're going to get, well, perhaps what you're expecting. So power of intent is everything. So, yeah, uh, I have been teaching people how to... Uh, build a new grid of temples around the world to, you know, kind of bring the grid up because we haven't built temples at least, I want to say for about two and a half thousand years, we've built a lot of churches, but they're not on the grid. And herein lies the crux of the matter with uh, modern religion. It's not connected to anything natural. It's a complete perversion of the laws of nature. Right. It seems like there's good intention people, uh, you know, in the congregations, there's good intention people leading the congregations, but at the same time, it seems like yeah. the texts themselves uh, have been lost, or we know that it's been the texts have been messed with over time, oh, totally. don't we? I mean, not even just everyone cites uh, what Emperor Constantine, but 
it, the, I think people have the wrong idea maybe about how that went down. People think yeah. some, you know, Constantine went over and took a Bible and ripped some pages out or something like that, where weren't these all kind of tattered scrolls from many different sources and they were all kind of slowly being put together over time? Well, I was researching the lost art of resurrection. I came across this uh, mm. exact problem. I wanted to find out why early Christians were being massacred by early Christians. It doesn't make any sense. And it turns out that there was an esoteric group of Christians who were more like Buddhists. Uh, they were following a tradition called the Way, which when, when I traced it back, it went all the way back to Japan in 8000 BC called the Taiyi which means the way uh, that's mm -hmm. that's what jesus says you know follow me i am the way he's insinuating right. that if you follow my example i've learned something that you don't know that's going to do what i can do that you can't right now very clever guy uh, but he was never nailed to a cross that was all a metaphor and that's what set the gnostics oh. aside from the fundamentalists and I, that was a real shocker for me too now i followed some very good researchers on this i mean they really were very top notch and they had mm -hmm. access to information that i don't so putting all these pieces together, <laughs> uh, basically the, 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 uh, the nutshell was that um, the Gnostic Christians were really peeved at the fundamentalists because they said, and I quote, uh, they have basically taken a, uh, an idea that is a metaphor, a spiritual metaphor, and confused it with an actual event. No one got nailed to a cross. A guy called Simon got nailed to a cross. He was a criminal. And the Quran says exactly the same thing. And the Quran elevates Jesus to prophethood alongside Muhammad. Now, if more people in this country knew about this, we'd stop hating Arabs. You know, right. this is where the conflict comes from. Uh, and it's very silly and very sad, too. But they were saying, no, Jesus was one of many, many initiates. And anyone can do this if you go for the right initiation. But right. we're not going to tell you how to do it because we have to look at you and go, do you have the credibility and the um, the sort of foundation, the moral foundation for us to teach you these important elements of moving matter and energy, because you can do some stupid things with this stuff. You have to join a secret group. You have to be taught for three years, and then you can apply this. Well, the fundamentalists didn't know this. They ran with the story. And to your point, by the time Constantine comes into the scene, a bunch of guys dressed in little frocks with little red shoes says, look, we want to take over Europe because the Romans aren't going to do it. We want to take power. And we heard that the story about Jesus, blah, 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 nailed to a cross, gets up three days later. And Constantine went something like this. Oh, God. Okay, yeah, well, I, I know the same story because I've been practicing this even before Christianity. It's called the Rite of Mithra. Mm -hmm. And it's a very old tradition from the Indus Valley from six and a half thousand BC. And of course, they're following the Japanese tradition. And it's a guy who on the spring equinox uh, starts a nine month uh, initiation process where at the end on the winter solstice, takes a drug, goes underground, comes back on Christmas Day, risen from the dead. So I'll tell you what, stop badgering me. I'll just take off the word Mithra because he's dying at this point. I'll take the word Mithra off, put the word Jesus, and there's your story. Because the story of Jesus did not wash with the Roman people because they said, well, he's not a god. He hasn't done anything godly. He's just a guy that did something great. Mm. So they had to turn him into a god and make him do the impossible. So they fictionalize right. an account, and that's where the schism came in and basically the catholic church spent the rest of its time annihilating 99 and a half percent of every other sect in the middle east because they knew something that nobody else did mm. and the story it seems like that's kind of seems like that's still going on in some ways uh, when we yeah. think about uh, back in the early 2000s when a lot of cultural artifacts from the iraqi desert went missing or were destroyed or were 
stolen and things like that yeah whoops on our watch as well so it's just very unfortunate it wasn't going to end well for them yeah these (laughs) things were not founded on on a solid foundation were not going to end well for them and i always said i never mixed christianity with catholicism the two are very different things christian real Mm. christianity is very beautiful it's very buddhist just like any teaching and it goes back much further than we think but uh the rest of it is just a variation on a theme by people who had no idea no access to the real information and that's where the conspiracy begins right well that you know that's where i began with psychedelics and ramdas talking about uh psychedelic experience but that you would as soon as you get it you want to run down the church aisles singing the good news and telling everybody about it because yep. it's the same story, even though it's not the same story or something yeah. like it's that. It's about self-empowerment without a middleman. That was the whole difference. You mm. can do it for yourself. You don't have to talk to a guy and pay him money for him to yeah. pretend to talk to God because, well, we already are a God. We are gods within ourselves. We can connect anytime we want to the creative source, whatever you want to call it. And there is no separation. That's an illusion. That's uh, for me. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) But you can't make a living doing that. So there's there's the uh, paradox, isn't it? Right, it is. Well, Freddie, I I only have, we're running low on time. I don't want to keep you too, too long, but I do have one more. I know, time flies, right? Uh, I do have one more question for you. How do you think this um, endless story that we are to never forget is doing right now. Do you think it's spreading further and wider than it has in recent years? Oh, yes. There's much more going on behind the scenes that you might think. Um, the media rarely focuses on positive things because it just doesn't sell. Uh, it's right. not because of conspiracy, unless you're dealing with right-wing media or extreme left-wing. Um, right. They're both steering things to their own ends, and it's all propaganda. Uh, Still but, that no, eagle versus uh, serpent thing, you know? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, exactly. I mean, I worked in the media for years to recognize there is no conspiracy. It's just, it's just paying bills. That's what it comes down to. You've got to create drama, and drama usually comes from negativity. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot more going on than, than meets the eye, and I see it whenever I travel around the world. There's people behind the scenes. In, of all places, Ohio is full of people living in the middle of nowhere, doing the right thing and going about their business of being an example. That's it. They're not, pre- they're not preaching. Right. They're just being an example and seeing if that goes. We're very close to hitting a critical mass. And paradoxically, we're also very close to annihilating ourselves because uh, the um, astronomers and the mathematicians are now uh, on par on the same boat saying the third decade of the century is going to be a bit difficult because we are faced with near total annihilation from objects flying around the sky. Now, you may have noticed There's a lot of um, public relations um, uh, releases every week by NASA talking about near-Earth objects and how can we obliterate them. And they're kind of letting you know that uh, we don't know as much about the skies as we should do. And this is why the old temples always look at the sky. They're always pointing at the time. They're obsessed with time because they want to know where things are because they recognize every once in a while the Earth is in the wrong place at the wrong time and we get hit, annihilated, and we have to start from scratch. The trick is to prepare and then ride out the waves and then survive and learn to tell the story. And, uh, you know, this story will continue forever, by the way. There is no end. It just continues. Uh, But it goes back to what we were saying. The trick is not to start off like barbarians, pick up the thread of civilization from where you left off. So there, and I should point out, there is an antidote to this in the very last chapter of The Missing Lands, which I will not tell you because it will ruin the story. But I did find an antidote to this perceived near-end negative scenario because I couldn't possibly finish off on that note. 
There has right. to be a happy ending somehow. And yes, there is a potential happy ending. And we are the people that we've been waiting for. We are the answer that we've been looking for. And it's all there. So, but no, we are paradoxically going to face the same event that the Anunnaki also faced, that the people of the serpent also faced 12,000 years ago. Uh, and this time there is a different outcome, a different potential outcome. So this is why they gave us the information. This is why they gave us the stories and built temples to last until our time. Yeah, the so green tablets or what the is it? Story. The em emerald tablets, right? Uh, is that, uh, I mean, that's literally talking about what you're talking about right now. It's partly to do with that as well. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. It's all the stories yeah. about uh, the, the flood and the end of the world. And uh, yeah, I mean, if you look at, for example, the Aboriginal people of Australia and they'll say, yeah, there's a, that big hole over there in the big basin. Yeah, that's where a meteorite, or what they call the uh, fire, is it the firewalker? I don't remember. Um, uh, the meteorite fell down a million years ago or thereabouts. And uh, of course, they were never taken seriously. But two geologists uh, actually said, well, let's find out. I mean, why would they make that stuff up? And they went there and they actually found the trace of the meteorite that landed there a million years ago. So they were not making it up. They're saying, yeah, we just, we know to look at the sky, look for the signs and prepare because sometimes we're just in the wrong place at the wrong time. So, and uh, we want to ride out the waves or whatever it is is coming towards us and do it elegantly. Mm -hmm. Why not? So always go to the source when you want to know the truth of these matters. Right? Absolutely. Okay. Well, Freddie, it's been a true honor. I really appreciate you coming on and talking to me. Thank you, and sir. Appreciate the opportunity. Welcome back anytime. <laughs> and uh, Just down the road luck. from each other. <laughs> yeah, just a little bit, you know? But uh, yeah, good luck in everything you do. And uh, everybody, ladies and gentlemen, pick up his book, The Missing Lands, and all of his other books. Thank you so much, Freddie. And uh, good night. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Deep Share Podcast. If you want to hear more, then hit that subscribe button. Follow me on all the social places. And remember, think for yourself, but don't always believe what you think. Till next time. Human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together. That's his period. Enough. <laughs> you have with the primal forces of nature. <laughs> and you... We are What do we know? What do we know? If I know what we know, then I can tell you what we know, and if someone else knows, okay? I mean... <laughs>